are listening to the podcast Advertising Playbook, your resource to better understand and execute successful podcast ad campaigns. Hello and welcome to the podcast Advertising Playbook. I'm your host, Heather Osgood. And today on the program, I have Jordan Bentley. He is the founder of Audiohook, and I'm just super excited to learn more about his company and what they're doing in this space. Really dig into podcast advertising today on the episode. Jordan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jordan, I'm really curious. You're relatively new, at least it looks like based on your LinkedIn profile, that you're relatively new to the podcast space. What kind of was the impetus to get you into the space? How did you arrive in podcasting? Yeah, great question. So I first made it into the wonderful world of of digital advertising and advertising back in about 2010 and spent a about a decade doing programmatic in the display and video world. And towards the end of that journey, I became a bit um, frustrated, it is maybe the right word, with some of the challenges in the display and video landscape. It felt like it at times was more of a game of you know how vendors could make money and less about actually helping the clients. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of fraud challenges, more so than what typically gets reported. And so we just saw lots of vendors and partners that we worked with that their intentions weren't there. Mm-hmm. And I think the other challenge is being candid, the medium is not as good of a medium as some of these other mediums. And so as I started to look around at like, what channels and mediums are like, is there real value in, right? That you can really help a brand with. I was really attracted to audio, right? And so that's what got me interested back in 2017, 2018. And so in 2019 started, you know, kind of a nights and weekends thing of let's start testing audio. Let's run some audio campaigns for some people. Let's see what infrastructure's here. Let's see how it works. Let's see how measurement works. Let's really understand this. And as we dug into it, like we just loved everything about it. It's like, holy moly, there's this like amazing industry that like everybody else is asleep on the will. And because most of ad tech's all excited about like OTT and video, and that's great. And I'm not taking anything away from that, but but audio was just we were really impressed by the medium and how well it works and just wanted to say like, let's go do this. This is something where we want to spend our time because it, at the end of the day, actually helps advertisers. It actually helps brand communicate their service, drive sales, and it has a net positive impact. And Mm -hmm. we didn't, most of the time, we didn't see that in a lot of these other channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I was really curious because the company that you were working at prior to founding Audiohook, it looked like you had been there for quite some time. And so I was curious to what level you at that company worked with audio. And it sounds like you guys didn't work with audio at all there. No. So I founded a dynamic ad company that worked in the display space back in 2012, 2013. And we had some pretty cool patents. We did dynamic creative, but we made the content personalized Mm -hmm. um, beyond the level of what most people are kind of familiar with. So most people, they think of dynamic ads and they think of like the retargeting ads where you go look at some shoes and it shows you a picture of the shoe and the price and the, the name of the shoe. 
And then it just kind of like rotates. And so the technology we had developed is as a user was browsing a website, we would infer certain sensitivities, whether they liked a certain color of shoe or a certain brand or a price point, because consumers don't always like click those things in like a search filter. They'll just dig into the stuff that's, that's piquing their interest. And so as they browsed, you know, shoes in this example, would identify like, oh, they really care about white shoes and they may not be super sensitive to price. And so then when we would go run ads for that retailer or Adidas or whoever, we would say, let's only show them white shoes. Or in the case that they were sensitive to price, say they liked white shoes and, and they had to be under $100, but there's this really cool pair, great reviews, but they were $120. What we would do is we would show them the shoe and then rather than showing the price, we would talk about, hey, this has 4.9 out of five stars, great reviews, named best running shoe of runner's magazine or something. And so really kind of personalizing that content. So it was really fun. I learned a lot about that space and some of the challenges that went along with it. The biggest challenge was it required a lot more collaboration between the brand and, and their designers and us, because no longer was it, hey, let's just go make a, make a pretty ad in one of these systems, Photoshop or whatever. It was now like, hey, it's dynamic. We have to talk about macros. We have to talk about all this stuff. And then they had lots of questions because it was all dynamic. Like, what could the ad say? Well, it could say a lot of things. And so it was, it was fun, not the most successful venture. And it's a company that, that still operates today. Mm -hmm. I, as, as I had been there for about 10 years, I was like, all right, I, I want to go on and do my next thing. Yeah. And were you a founder in that company or just one of the original employees? I was. Okay. Nice. Yeah, nice. I, I also founded that company. Nice. That's awesome. Okay. So this, so Audiohook is not your first venture, which is, is great. I do think that your second and third companies, I think are different than your first. Um, so I think in a lot of ways you can learn so much in what you've done in the past and apply it, which is nice, right? To be able yep. to learn and, and change. One of the things that you said in, in that description that I think really is like, you know, just strikes me as we have so many privacy conversations in podcasting, um, I always love to talk to people who have been out of the podcast space because obviously privacy is super important. Nobody wants to say that we're not respectful of people's privacy. But we also all know that as users of the Internet, <laughs> that our privacy is being exposed when we go online. And every time I ever talk about retargeting ads, especially to the degree which it sounds like you were targeting people. To me, I'm like, wow. Or, you know, I'm I'm sure you've had those situations. I know I have. I don't personally have a smart speaker, which maybe I shouldn't admit in the podcast space. But part of the reason I don't have one is I just I'm know shocked. that they listen to you. And I've had situations at friends' houses where, like, we talk about something obscure. And then all of a sudden, like, we're hearing an ad for that product. And I'm like, this is just too creepy. Um, sure. So I guess I'm just kind of curious when you think about privacy, how do you feel like privacy in the podcast space compares to privacy in other forms of advertising? And do you think that we're with attribution tracking, for instance, that we really are getting like, are we are we there like on that line of, gosh, we're kind of almost crossing over into privacy issues or what's your take on all of that? No, it's a great question. And um, I think privacy is so broad at times that 
just in your example, they can get conflated a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So you use the example of like, hey, I don't have a smart speaker because, you know, I've had these experiences where you're talking and then like you see this ad for something. So in the case that you have a smart speaker, the manufacturer, if they elected so, could listen, right? There's a lot of smart speakers and I don't want to throw shade at any smart speaker sure. manufacturer and say, and say that they're listening to you. But but that's a manufactured thing, right? Mm -hmm. Your podcast, if you download podcast ABC, they don't manufacture that speaker. They don't have access to that, right? So there's privacy in podcasting, but then there's like device privacy. And so are there or could there be privacy issues with devices? Sure, right? But those concerns could be whether they're your smartphone, whether it's your TV, whether it's your car. And I think that those are valid questions and questions that consumers can ask the manufacturers of those devices and say like, hey, are you listening to me? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, is this thing always on? How are you using it? I know Amazon obviously has a lot of smart speakers and I know, you know, people have questioned them about, hey, how are you using these things? So I think those are good, valid questions, but I would put those in a different realm as more of like hardware privacy issues. Again, important, but kind of different than what I would say are advertising privacy issues. Because if the device is listening to you mm -hmm. and then they're taking and generating that data and selling it to somebody, again, there's a few privacy failures. But to be clear, this isn't the fault of podcasts, right? It's not the fault of advertising explicitly. It's really more of a failure on the device manufacturer or the operating system of that device and, and what they're doing with that data. It's talking about privacy with regards to podcasting coming from the display and video space, I do not think podcasting has a privacy issue. I know that there's been some articles about like, hey, does podcasting have a privacy issue? And here's the reason why I say that. In podcasting, you can listen to a podcast by downloading it from the feed, right? Mm -hmm. You do not have to be logged in. Now, you could choose to use an app that you're logged in with, that you've told them your name and email address and your home address and a bunch of information. But you can listen to lots of the podcasts, you know, without having to explicitly be logged in. For sure. And so when you use it, and, and most apps don't require that information when you listen to podcasts. And so when you go download a podcast, the only information that's provided back to the hosting platform and potential advertisers is the user agent string and the IP address. The user agent string, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, but it basically just says, what device do they have? Mm -hmm. That's all it says. It used to include more information a few years ago. Apple and Google and browsers have kind of cracked down on what information is being shared. So if you're listening on an iPhone, it's literally saying like, hey, somebody listened to this on an iPhone 11 Pro. Mm -hmm. And that's the extent of it. So it's hard to say that that's really unique to you, right? There's lots and lots of these devices. So simply knowing that they listen to it on a smartphone or they listen to it on an iPhone, doesn't create any privacy issues. The other part is the IP address. And that's where when people talk about privacy issues, they typically tend to hone in on IP addresses. And so without going too far in the weeds, it's important to kind of differentiate between two types of IP addresses. One are the IP addresses that you get from like a Wi-Fi 
um, whether that's at your house, your office, and those Wi-Fi based kind of IP addresses are a bit more stable versus cellular IP addresses, which are incredibly dynamic and change very, very often. In either case of those, neither of those are specific to me or specific to you. If I'm using my phone and I listen to a podcast as I'm driving or something, that's going to be downloaded via cellular connection. And that IP address is changing. It can change super fast. It can change every minute. It can change every 10 minutes. So that IP address is by no means unique to me. And there are going to be hundreds of people that use that over the course of a day or several days. And so that there's, again, not a huge privacy issue. Again, people talk about IP addresses being able to get linked to other information like an email address. In the case of cellular IPs, it's really hard to do that because if it's constantly changing, you can't reliably associate that with an email address. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could guess, right? I, I can make up a number and say like, oh, I think this is Bob, but it's, that's not real. Right. And so then the other part is the, the household or the Wi-Fi, but at businesses or homes, there are several people there. And so mm -hmm. again, knowing that it's exactly you or it's exactly me really isn't happening. Can they identify that maybe it's this business or maybe it's this house? Sure. And even you can do things to kind of reset those things. So, you know, getting off my soapbox a little bit here, um, in short, there isn't an issue. And I would contrast that with, say, display advertising. Again, not to like throw them under the bus, but display like you log into Yahoo Mail, you log into your different mail accounts. And a lot of those providers, um, Yahoo Mail being a, a specific one, a lot of that data is through partnerships or other ways monetized and sold. And so mm -hmm. if you log into a publisher, if you log into a mail client, they know your email address because you literally just told them, this is me. And then they can kind of associate a lot of that more personal information. So again, in, in audio, we're not like logging into like check our email right. or like to hear our email or something. Yeah. So it, it, it's just not the same. Um, mm -hmm. And you, we really, not to say that people can't be concerned, but it's really not a, an issue in the podcasting space. Yeah. I really appreciate you answering that. And I appreciate how in-depth you answered that. Obviously, you're not from an attribution company. But I really do think that it's amazing to hear you talk like that because I just, I agree with you. And I also believe that people's privacy is important. But having attribution tracking and having these solutions in podcasting is super important. And I do get frustrated when I feel like people oppose it and say, this isn't like safe for the podcast industry. Um, because I think that, you know, just to your point, we are not tracking people to nearly the degree that so many other forms of advertising track people. And that information really is very valuable to advertisers to help move the industry forward. So, so I really appreciate that explanation. And I would like to talk a little bit about Audiohook and just understand a little bit better why you founded that company and the services that you're able to provide. Yeah, so... Um... I mentioned a little bit about the journey to AudioHook in this far. And so, like I said, in 2019, really got excited about audio, started testing things. One of the things that was really shocking to me was, again, I'll use the term red-headed stepchild, not to be demeaning to anybody that is a stepchild or has red hair, but it, it's a phrase, right? 
But audio seems to have been this like redheaded stepchild that like nobody cared about. Mm -hmm. And so back at, at, at Atomatic, when I was doing dynamic display stuff, we worked with a lot of DSPs so that their users could use our dynamic creative services. And so I was well familiar with DSPs. In fact, at one point we had built a lot of the core tech behind a DSP. And one of the things I had learned and seen was being a DSP is a really hard space. There's a lot of DSPs out there. There's a lot of costs associated with them. Um, in general, there hasn't been a lot of successful DSPs. You know, the mm -hmm. trade desk has obviously been very successful, mm -hmm. but there's a whole like list of DSPs that have like gone out of business or sold for pennies on the dollar. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it, it's a hard business. <laughs> and so the last thing I wanted to do coming out of like 10 years of ad tech with frankly, not a lot of success was like, hey, let's go start a DSP. And so as we started buying audio on some other DSPs, we just started seeing stuff, right? We started seeing some challenges with reach. We started seeing challenges with like the data that was coming back, like, hey, what shows are we actually buying on? Some transparency issues there. And as we started to dig into that, one of the things that we learned is, again, this redheaded stepchild issue that a lot of DSPs, their main audio demand primarily comes from what's called an SSP, somebody that handles kind of the sell side and works with publishers, comes from SSPs that they're already connected with. So like, for example, Magnite is a great SSP. They're publicly traded. Most DSPs are connected to them already for display mm -hmm. and for video. Mm -hmm. Magnite has some audio inventory. And so it's fairly easy for an existing DSP to be like, oh, hey, let's just start getting the audio inventory. And now we can do audio as well. And that was kind of our experience thus far. The Almost like it was like an add-on, like, oh, we might as well just yep. put it in there. Exactly. Exactly. The problem was, again, audio is different and it takes some time and effort to do it right. And when we had conversations at, I spoke with several DSPs about like, hey, how can we get more inventory, right? There are other inventory sources out there. There are other publishers out there, right? DSPs are focused on getting all of the display inventory, all of the video inventory, because that's how you make sure you get a lot of reach. Mm -hmm. And so when we talked to them about like, hey, how can we get more audio so we can have a bigger audio reach? The answer was, audio is just not a focus for us. And I was like, really? And we even at a couple DSPs offered to pay for the man hours to, to do some of these integrations. And the response from management came back is, look, we're really heads down on OTT, on video. That's where the vast majority of dollars getting spent are going. And so, so even when you offered to pay to have them develop it, they yeah. kind of were like, uh, no, thanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it was like, and it was a little surprising. Now, yeah. in context and to, and to defend these DSPs, because they're great, successful DSPs, I likely would have done the same thing in their shoes. An average statistic is the average DSP, less than 5% of the media spend that goes through them is audio, right? So this is like being a car dealership and somebody saying, hey, you should sell like bicycles. It's like people are buying cars from us and they're spending a lot of money buying cars from us. Why should we go sell bikes? Well, did you know that, you know, people buy bikes too? Well, sure. I'm not, not saying bikes are bad, but it's like, it's not the business that we're in. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, when Netflix announced that they were adding an ad supported option, right? Most of these streaming services have added ad supported options. 
there's a lot of innovation and work to do in that space. And again, engineers are expensive. So to be like, hey, we're going to go spend all this time and calories on something that makes up a very, very small amount to spend, it just doesn't make financial sense. And and that's where they were coming from. And again, I, I don't have any issues or beef with that. I don't think they're a bad company or anything. It, it makes a lot of sense. It just didn't make financial sense for their business. And so after having a few of these conversations, you know, and unfortunately being an entrepreneur, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, yes. dude, I, I feel your pain. I, I feel your go, pain. <laughs> I need to go solve this. Yeah. You know, damn it. It looks like I'm going to go build an audio DSP because if I can't get it anywhere and the world needs this, right? Like audio mm -hmm. is awesome. The world needs a platform where marketers and brands can go leverage this power that's built around the tools this medium needs. And so if you if we talk about smart speakers, if we talk about you know your watches, like these are all devices that you can't see a display add on, you can't see a video add on, but they can play audio ads, mm -hmm. right? Whether you're out running, whether you're working, like the the way you engage with audio is very different from display or TV. And so the existing tools and frameworks that have been built to, whether it's attribution, whether it's targeting, whatever that is, it needs new tools that are specific to audio. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we really became focused on is like, all right, let's go integrate with all of the audio sources and not just the SSPs, but let's go do integrations with publishers directly themselves that maybe they're too small, that either an SSP doesn't want to work with them or for whatever mm -hmm. reason, they don't have currently have access to demand, um, you know, programmatic demand. Let's go work with all of those so that media buyers can have a one, like a single place that they can access all of the audio demand so that they can get more reach for their campaigns. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously have the targeting and attribution and these other features um, so that they can run successful campaigns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear, you are doing a variety of different audio, not just podcasts. So are you doing streaming and other forms as well? Yeah. Anything that's audio and ad supported, mm -hmm. we do. So podcasting, digital radio, and then streaming. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would classify streaming as like the streaming apps, right? The Spotify's, the Pandora's, TuneIn's. So yeah, th those are the three main categories. And I think they all, to be clear, play an important role because while audio is growing and a lot of people use it, again, advertisers want significant scale. Mm -hmm. And while any given audio channel, such as digital radio, digital radio is growing, but it's not massive on its own. Same with streaming, growing, but again, on its own without podcasting, not massive. And so I think all three audio channels, if you will, kind of need each other. Um, mm -hmm. Because so, some people love podcasts and they only listen to podcasts. There are others that are just more kind of radio junkies, which is which is cool, right? Teach mm -hmm. their own. And so, yes, you're right. We focus on audio. We're not exclusively focused on podcasting, though podcasting is a big chunk of what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, one One question I have is I always assumed, and maybe wrongly so, that companies like Spotify and Pandora were doing 100% of their ad selling. But as a DSP, are you able to tap into that inventory as well? 
We are. And, and each, I should point out, each publisher handles this differently. If you're a publisher, there's a few ways to think about sales, right? First is like direct sales. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, let's go reach out to the advertisers we know. And then second are like other demand sources. And, and programmatic can be one of those. In the past, you've had like networks. And, and that's something that you see in podcasting as well. And so bringing this back to podcasting, you might have a host that's like, hey, I'm going to go do direct sales on my, my, myself. I might be part of a network and enable them to sell, you know, inventory on my show. My hosting platform may support programmatic advertising. And the goal, at least in my opinion, for a publisher is like, hey, how can I get the, the best rate for my inventory? Mm -hmm. And the way you get the best rate for your inventory is to have more demand, mm -hmm. right? The more people that want to buy from you, naturally, you can then charge a higher amount. So most publishers provide access through programmatic means because at a minimum, it helps provide demand. And an example might be if a publisher only did direct sales, the advertisers there might say, hey, we're willing to pay $6 CPM or $7 CPM or an $8 CPM. And it, without some of the other demand, they might say, well, that's, you know, we don't want it to go to waste. Let's do what we can at $6. Mm -hmm. As they add in other demand sources, it's like, hey, actually programmatic's bringing in $10 or $11 or $12. It allows the sales team to then provide some pressure back to the advertiser to say, we actually have lots of demand at $12. Would love to work with you. Don't get me wrong but I can't sell this at $6 because we already have a list of people that would buy it from us for $12. So I, I could do that deal at, at 13 or 15 and we could do that host red ad. And so it, it's, a, it's an important compliment. The other thing is that I'll mention on this is the way that, again, publishers kind of prioritize those things varies. So Spotify has programmatic demand we can buy from Spotify. However, um, Spotify prioritizes their direct sales. Mm -hmm. And so they will go sell a lot of their, what I'll call streaming non-podcast inventory, to be clear. They'll go prioritize the direct sales of that. And the amount of ads left over then goes to programmatic. So in the case of Spotify, that's called like remnant. Uh -huh. uh, now you can do programmatic guaranteed with Spotify, or you can still buy through programmatic pipes, mm. but you you know, work more directly with Spotify to say, hey, we've got a big campaign. We want to buy $100,000 worth for these two months. Here's the targeting we want. But then we'll transact through it over programmatic pipes. Anyways, there, there's a lot of different configurations and ways publishers do this. But yes, you know, we have access to a, a lot of inventory. Now, there are some shows like Joe Rogan, as an example, that they may not have programmatic inventory. Joe Rogan isn't, there isn't programmatic access for Joe Rogan's inventory. So it's not like 100%, like, yes, you can always get programmatic access to it. But in general, um, you can set up programmatic buying for, for a lot of inventory. Are you doing real-time bidding? Yes. Okay. And is that different? I, I feel like as I have you know, tried to understand and learn more about the programmatic space, I feel like my definition of programmatic is real-time bidding. And if you don't have real-time bidding, it's not really truly programmatic. But I guess I'm just curious. It doesn't seem to me like that's the case with all, like kind of the, the programmatic inserted 
ads. Is that what you've yeah, seen? It, it, it's a great question. Again, this is a case where I think like privacy, the word can mean a lot of things. So programmatic has a few connotations. One can be real-time bidding. Mm -hmm. Another could be just automation. And so I think it's important to be a little bit more specific. And when we say, hey, programmatic, what does that mean? Are you talking about real-time bidding? Are you talking about programmatic guaranteed? You can even do other types of integrations that are called like a vast, a vast tag or a vast URL where they can call directly out to another system. Mm -hmm. And people may use the term programmatic in that sense because it's, it's being handled by technology and it's automated. So yeah, I think it's, it's a question of, again, let's be, let's talk specifics. So yes, we do real-time bidding. Mm -hmm. um, an example of that would be if a host is, is on some platform, Red Circle is a hosting platform that provides this capability to, to their hosts and clients. And so if you're on Red Circle and you want to increase your monetization, you can say, hey, I'm going to turn on programmatic ads. And that happens in a real-time bidding fashion. So when somebody goes and downloads that on their phone, when that, that feed or, or audio file is being downloaded behind the scenes, a call is made out to an SSP. Those calls are then made out to, to the corresponding DSPs that, that they have business relationships with, one of them being us, of course. And then we look at that request and say, oh, are any of our advertisers interested in this inventory? Does it match any of their campaigns? If it does, great. We respond with the appropriate price that, that the advertisers configured. And if we have the highest price, right, we win and that ad gets inserted into it. So all of that happens via real-time bidding or programmatic mm -hmm. um, would, be, would be one such example. But like I said, you can... You can also do programmatic guaranteed, which doesn't have the same kind of bidding nature. You're not like, oh, I want to bid $7 right now, or I want to bid $12 right now, or $3. Programmatic guaranteed is, is typically a negotiated rate of like, hey, we want to buy a million impressions. We want to manage like the frequency caps, right? We want to make sure our ad server is measuring it. We want to manage frequency caps. We want to make sure that the attribution's working correctly. So there could be a number of reasons why you want a DSP to do your programmatic, your programmatic guaranteed buys. But, but in that case, we're not bidding a different amount. We're saying, hey, mm -hmm. both parties have agreed to a $9 CPM. So mm -hmm. it's $9. There's no deciding we're going to win it every time we say, yep, we want this. It's $9. So that's another scenario. Th does that make sense? Did I confuse you at all? Though? Nope. Nope. No, that, that's great. So I, I think one of the questions I have on that is, so with programmatic guarantee, are you doing that with fast tags? That's a great question. <laughs> and there's, there's a few answers there. The correct way, the, the most proper way to do programmatic guaranteed is you still use what is, you use the RTB spec and you have a bid request. Bid request is just it, it, we use in programming this this term object, but it's it's just basically a list of like details about it, right? So um, you can think of it like a, an order, if you will, but it, it's per impression. And so programmatic guaranteed uses the RTB spec and says, okay, here's the impression ID, here's the the user agent string of the device, here's the episode, here's you know the SSP that it's coming from. 
just provide some details so that we can make sure it matches the campaign settings. Mm-hmm. So official kind of programmatic guaranteed requires the publisher to send out an RTB bid request in an object. We would get that and then respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. Now you can effectively do the same thing behind the scenes with a vast tag. Mm. And, and in audio, uh, how most of this works is actually with vast tags. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the hosting platform actually has a vast tag in their system mm-hmm. and the vast tag then calls an SSP and the SSP converts that vast tag into that object to then send that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can, you can effectively accomplish the same thing with a direct vast tag because the vast tag can just call the ad server directly and say, Hey, we want an ad for this campaign. And then you can respond with the ad. You don't have the RTB object per se, but the vast tag can pass in like, Hey, here's the, here's the podcast name. Here's the episode ID. Here's the user agent string. So the short answer is yes, you can do programmatic guaranteed with a vast tag, whether or not you officially converted into an RTB object. It is more semantics, uh, Mm -hmm. but yes, you can do it with a vast tag. Okay. And then for frequency capping, how do you do frequency capping or do you do frequency capping when you're working with a hosting provider that doesn't, doesn't have that capability? Yeah. So that's one of the great benefits about a DSP and programmatic guaranteed is you can add a lot of features that the hosting platform themselves may not have. Okay. In addition to frequency capping, that could be various targeting options. Mm-hmm. So AudioHook, we've done an integration with a company called LiveRamp. They have a lot of these third-party data segments. They're the biggest in the advertising space. They have about 250,000 different data segments. And so if you wanted to target somebody that's interested in sports, right? Mm-hmm they can send us and say, hey, and a lot of this is done with lookalike modeling. It's probabilistic, right? Again, mm-hmm. privacy safe. They don't, they don't know who that person is. They don't know their exact name, but they've seen various characteristics that say, hey, we think this person is, is likely interested in sports. We can then layer that on top of a buy. So while the hosting platform may not be able to do that, when they send a request to us, we can say, okay, is this person also interested in sports? Yes, no. And then we can decide to serve that. So yeah, DSP can layer on those capabilities. The other advantage is if you're buying ads from, say, two different networks or two different publishers, they don't know that you may be both serving ads to the same person, right? So frequency mm-hmm. capping, um, you kind of have to know all of the ads that you're serving to effectively implement frequency capping, right? Because if I'm listening to um, podcast X that that's hosted by red circle, just as an example, and they only want, the client only wants to hear the ad once per day, red circle can implement that, but they may not know about another podcast that's getting served on megaphone that also has a frequency of one per day, right? So the, the user, if they listen to two different podcasts and they're being provided by different platforms, uh-huh. it's going to get served two ads, even though each individual platform is honoring the frequency cap the user experience is still not a great one because they are like, why do I keep hearing these same ads over and over? A DSP sees that, oh, we're doing all these buys across all these different networks or inventory channels. And so we can say, no, we already served this individual an ad. 
So we're not going to serve it again until the frequency cap allows us to do such. That is really interesting. I've never thought about it from podcast to podcast because ultimately that is something that should be considered. So that's pretty cool. Now, what if what if an advertiser, you know, obviously there's several different DSPs. Like what if, let's say Starbucks says, I'm going to place an ad through Audiohook, but I'm also going to go over here and place an ad through Triton. And, um, you know, I want this frequency capping like that, then they're, then it's out the window, right? Because, yep. I mean, then you don't know if they've served an ad to somebody on it using a different DSP, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you kind of run into the same issue in that yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, and again, this isn't perfect, right? You may run sure. into that if you're doing like a sponsorship, right? Mm-hmm. Where the sponsorship says, hey, every person that listens to this episode is going to hear the ad from, you know, uh, better help, mm-hmm. whoever the advertiser is in addition to like other buys that they may be doing. But yes, that you, your understanding is correct there. Okay. And so I I do want to talk a little bit about targeting. And I know you mentioned live ramp. So I feel like that's one of the issues that I keep hearing come up in the space is that we don't have the level of targeting that it would be nice to have. And sometimes it is difficult to say for sure Yes, I'm reaching a middle-aged man in Texas that likes sports, but is LiveRamp providing enough of that information for you that you're able to get that targeting um, fairly specific? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And this, you know, goes back, of course, to the privacy conversation that we had originally as mm-hmm. well, right? Like, if you want to be able to target Bob, you know, that's 32 years old and lives at 123, you know, West Street in Houston, Texas, it's hard to enable that if we also want to be privacy friendly. So the middle ground here is a term called probabilistic targeting. Of course, we want Bob to have his privacy and we don't think people should know exactly where he lives or exactly what his age is or any of those things. But, um, and, and I also think this goes back to attribution as well. Like, if you say, hey, let's have zero targeting for the sake of privacy and zero kind of attribution for the sake of privacy, well, then when advertisers spend tens of thousands of dollars, it doesn't it doesn't work as well, or rather, they don't even know how well it worked. Right. And so then those dollars dry up, which allow hosts to produce all the wonderful podcasts. So the middle ground, like I said, tends to be what's called probabilistic target. And that's what we tend to see in most of these cases is Nobody knows that Bob is exactly 35 years old. However, there are various signals that indicate a level of propensity there, Mm -hmm. right? That say, hey, we believe we're 80% confident, we're 90% confident that Bob is 35. And, And actually in age targeting, it's a range between 30 and 35 and 35 and 40 and so on and so forth. And there's lots of ways third party data companies build these profiles. Uh, uh, but, but it's done so in a privacy friendly way such that you can say, okay, yeah, we have a high degree of confidence that this person's within this age range. Now, one of the nice things with our live ramp integration is there's lots of different providers and we also expose how those providers get the data and how they're like building out their models. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if an advertiser wanted to be like, hey, I see that there's four companies that can help me with age targeting. 
one, you can A-B test campaigns. You can say, hey, let's see, one data provider may have better data than another data provider. And so you could set up two different campaigns and you could see which one has better performance and, you know, um, kind of associate or correlate that their data may be a little bit more accurate. So anyways, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, 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 that's perfect. Let's see here. The last question that I had for you is that in terms of using AudioHook, can any advertiser go onto your platform and say, I want to do an ad buy? Is that something that's available to anyone? Or how does someone go about actually buying ads through AudioHook? The short answer is yes. Anybody can go on and buy an ad, set up a campaign. Historically, DSPs um, were these big annual contracts with mm -hmm. high minimums, and it, prov it prevented a lot of smaller businesses from using them. The observation that, that we made is if you look at all these DSPs, most of these DSPs have thousands or tens of thousands of customers. And then you look at the other extreme, which is like Google and Facebook, and there's no long-term contract you have to sign, right? There's no minimum spend. And they have millions and millions of customers. And so we've taken their lead on this a bit to say, anybody can sign up, anybody can create an account. There's no annual contract. We want to earn your business because you're seeing success in using the platform, not because you're contractually obligated to give us money each month. And so they can just go to audiohook.com. There's a link at the top to, to sign up for free. Uh, and you can create an account and yeah, you can give it a go. And um, hopefully we earn your business each month. And at any point, if you don't think we're doing a job, then you're free to go use a different service. And uh, we're sorry we let you down. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. One, one final, final question. Are you able to share with us what your average CPMs are right now? Um, they vary. So mm -hmm. a, a lot of advertisers will set up what are called PMPs. These are private marketplace deals. And so the, I, I don't have an average CPM to quote you. I can give you ranges though. So like streaming inventory, as an example, we tend to see streaming inventory is typically as low as about a $10 CPM. And then towards the end of quarters, it can get as high as 30, 40, $50. And digital radio, the CPMs tend to be a bit lower. Um, and again, you get typically ranges from like 5 to $15. Again, because this is real-time bidding, mm -hmm. you can put in a dollar. You just may not get any ads. Sure. And then podcasting, we see a wide range on. And I think some of that goes back to um, you can actually execute programmatic campaigns with host red ads. I think that's a little bit of a something that's not often understood. And so we see advertisers who will go have the host pre-record the ad, get it all set up. So there's a great experience there. Uh, and that might be done at a, at a 15 or 20 or $25 CPM. And then they, they set the campaign up. Mm -hmm. um, and as well as just uh, announcer red ads that, that vary in price. Uh, accordingly, typically you're talking seven, eight, nine dollars is on the low end. And then depending on the particular podcast and how much demand there is for it, again, those can go into the $20 plus range. Awesome. Well, Jordan, this conversation has been really discreet and super enlightening. So I appreciate all of the insights. Super excited for what you're doing at AudioHook. Um, I think definitely there's a need for it in the industry. So I'm excited that you're there and filling that. If people want to connect with you, where is a good place for them to reach you? 
Um, I am on Twitter, uh, Mr. Jordan Bentley, where I rant at times about ad tech. And uh, they can shoot me an email. My email is jordan at audiohook.com. And of course, they can reach out to us through the site as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening. I hope that this episode has been educational. I really have appreciated Jordan's insight and really going in deep in this kind of programmatic space that I know we all have questions about. So I hope it's been a great episode for you. And if you are interested in learning more about podcast advertising, head on over to truenativemedia.com and download our podcast advertising guide. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Podcast Advertising Playbook, your source to a better understanding of the podcast advertising industry. 